1: Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I get to chat to the most fabulous guests and feed them some delicious food. Not literally, of course, as we're still in lockdown. This series, myself and my guests are sat in our respective homes and I order in a surprise takeaway for us to share virtually over a video link. Today, that special delivery is going to the home of former Labour cabinet minister and Strictly star,
0: Ed Bowles. She said, I know what will do. She went to the kitchen, came back in with 20 small glasses and a bottle of Harvey's Bristol cream. (laughs) And she poured everybody at nine in the morning a small glass of sherry. And they all toasted my demise.
1: Hello Ed and welcome in for lunch. There is a a delivery driver, I can see the little icon moving across my phone, uh, heading towards you from Green Lanes, uh, which you're just off with a load of Green Lanes finest. I suspect you know exactly what that
0: means. Green Lanes, it's got to be, it's got to be Turkish.
1: It has got to be Turkish. So you've got uh, Turkish food heading towards you from a very well known uh, Turkish restaurant there called a Dayabakia. And um, I've got uh, exactly the same, almost exactly the same menu coming from a place called Saray here in Hearn Hill.
0: The truth is I've never ever had it for lunch. Have you not? Normally about two in the morning <laughs> for the, the strictly after party. We used to go to one of those different Turkish restaurants on Green Lanes because they're open till like four or five in the morning and they're like a hub of activity so uh and it's a brilliant time to eat late night turkish <laughs>
1: excellent stuff I, I mean i'm loving this the the image of of you being you know forced to eat turkish food at <laughs> lunchtime but then you know this is these are extraordinary
0: circumstances but tell tell me the story about your lasagna the the history of the lasagna after the election 2010. I became Shadow Chancellor. We were back in opposition. I was having a dinner for my, for my team, ministers and the, the whips and our advisors, about 20 people. And Yvette said, I don't, I'd done it once before, could she invite her team as well? Because I was going to cook lasagna and so be about 30 people, 35 people. The Mail on Sunday then had a big double-paid spread, Ed and Yvette's lasagna plot. <laughs> which was that we had deliberately had a lasagna evening in order to cabal against Ed Miliband's leadership and attempt to depose him. And for some reason, the lasagna was kind of central to, and it wasn't like a spaghetti bolognese (laughs) evening or a barbecue evening. It was the lasagna plot. Then a couple of months later, somebody um, got in touch. So they were doing a fundraiser. Would I cook A lasagna or at least you know put the lasagna together which they could auction as one of ed's lasagnas as in of the plot and i said sure and i think it went yes yeah so i i did it and it went for a thousand pounds i wrote out on a piece of house of commons paper the recipe put it on the top i must have done that since i don't know 15 20 times i think one went for eight thousand pounds
1: that's that's a very valuable lasagna Amazing. Um, has Ed Miliband ever eaten your lasagna, the plot lasagna?
0: I'm not sure that Ed Miliband has ever eaten my lasagna. He did have, though, once a, a dinner for the Shadow Cabinet. He had kind of dinner for Shadow Cabinet members in his office, you know, once every few months. But there was one period where he was clearly on one of those no-carb evening diets. And his office coordinated poorly and decided to serve us all lasagna And Ed was attempting to draw the shadow cabinet together and rally us for the fight ahead. And all that any of us could focus on was the fact that he spent the whole of the meal picking out (laughs) the sheets of lasagna from his lasagna, putting them to one side, and only to eat the rest of it. And it's kind of it was it was so meticulous. I mean, they, they should have they should have had chili. Your
1: doorbell is about to go. I would go to your front door and uh, collect your food. It, uh, I'm looking at the map. It's right there. There it goes. That was the doorbell. Go get it all. You might need some cutlery. Now, shall I tell you what a, you have been sent by, Deabakia? Bakia? what should be there? You yeah. should have okay. three separate things. So there's there's two, two parts to the savoury side. So you've got a mini meze platter, which should have hummus... Kissia, which is a couscous salad, uh, a beetroot dip, uh, Tarator, which is yogurt with carrot and dill and onion and garlic, and babaganoush, obviously aubergine, and uh, I always mispronounce this muhamara, uh, yeah. red peppers with chilies and walnuts. So there's a whole lot of meze there.
0: They certainly think they're not just catering for one. You either think it's their family meal or you've definitely overordered.
1: Is there any way you could hold it up to the to the camera so we can we can just. Oh wow! Look at that. That's has yours arrived yet? So I have received (laughs) rather large bag of. Basically, I've got the same as you. So um, I think we should both hit our our meze. Mine's good. (laughs) Mine's enormous as well. There's a lot going on. I'm gonna just so you can see it. See if I can hold it up. It's the same sort of thing. Oh, look at that. I love the way you sort of, you're you leaning over as though you're peering into... A, I know, I sort of
0: feel as though if I... An if open I drawer. To, I, I, exactly, I can lean in and see see down.
1: Do you accept that people might, a few years ago, have found this hinterland of yours, this interest in lasagna recipes? And we'll get on, there's a piano I can see in oh, yeah. uh, our, our Zoom behind you. And obviously, you know, the two of us Those share two. this interest. That the, the Ed Balls who was... Uh, in the shadow cabinet, obviously in government before that, they wouldn't necessarily have associated all of that with you. You you seem too head down and straightforward and all about the policy.
0: I think that being a cabinet minister, particularly shadow cabinet minister, to some extent, I mean, it's hard and consuming. And so it's not so easy to have um, the time to do the kind of things you might want to do in an everyday life. But I think there's a bigger issue, which is that... The nature of politics means that people, that things are seen through a prism. People find it very hard to look through that and see the real you. What they see is the the image which is refracted through, and that's quite constructed by um, by your job, how the opposition sees you, how the press report you. And, you know, I was. I think if I'd been shorter and thinner, I might have had a different image. But you know, the nature of me was always that I was going to be seen as a bit of a bruiser. And then government's tough, and sometimes there's arguments and rows, and if you fight your corner, then that adds to the the image. And then when you are having big arguments, as we were with David Cameron and George Osborne, across the dispatch box, head to head, then that all feeds the, the image. And the truth was, I was doing... All the things I do now uh, I've, I've always done. So I don't think i fundamentally changed. I think most people who really know me would say I'm the same as I was 5, 10, and 15 years ago. But one of the funny things for me after Strictly, I mean, all the time people say, they still do, if I get in a taxi, um, a cab driver will say, we always knew you were a politician, but it's really nice to find out that now you're a human being. So can I take you back yep. to Norwich where you grew up? Yep. Um, you, I, I, I read... Um,
1: I read your book you got a little bit of stick because some people suggested that you emphasized your grandfather 's working class background without necessarily talking about your dad having become a professor but and what kind of an upbringing
0: yeah. was it would you say comfortable there was not yeah. a lot of money we never i didn't go abroad until i was uh, until I was eighteen didn't go on to on an airplane until I went to graduate school as age twenty one. So there wasn't there wasn't um foreign holidays or um fancy cars. But we never went without. So we were fine, but we weren't we weren't flush.
1: Um and football, I have to say I have no interest in football. Um but, but it was clearly what, what's really striking about the way you wrote about it in your book
0: is less about sport and more about tribe. We moved from Norwich when I was Eight to Nottingham, but I came from Norwich and I was a Norwich City supporter, and that was like a big deal for me. With all these Well, at, that, at that time Nottingham would have been Nottingham Forest was a very big. Te- I mean, it's obviously still important, but it was a very. Brian big Brian te- Clough was winning the, um, the 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 European Cup and the First Division Championship, but we saw um, Norwich at Leicester and Derby and Nottingham, but also when we went back to. Norwich to see family and my mum and dad both had big families in Norfolk the football was always a part of that going to games listening on the radio during kind of weddings and and christenings and then over time I don't think my dad ever taught much about this when we were little his father died when he was 10 and this was, I think, a, like a big searing experience in, in his life. And he was the youngest of three boys and his mother never worked. And so they genuinely um, were living on welfare support, went to the grammar school and then went to, to university. But it turned out, my dad told me later, that his father worked in Norwich in the gas company on Gas Hill and then would walk down the hill at lunchtime and then would work on the turnstiles in the afternoon at the football ground at Carra Road. And when his two sons arrived age uh, eight, nine, he would lift them over the turnstile so they could go and watch the game while he was um, working. And he would then go and work on the speedway in the evening. So actually, I came to realise later how much the football club and its um, binding nature in our family is carrying on something which was there. 50, 60, 70 years ago for for my father. By the way, how is the meze? Is it all right? It's really good. My okay. own disappointment is I'd quite like the yeah. muskaborek.
1: Do you know oh, what
0: Muscle is the, the feta cheese in the in the phyllo pastry which folds over into a, a triangle.
1: Yeah, it, it basically blame me. It was definitely on the menu and I didn't order it for you. <laughs> so I've let you down it. I have you know, I've that, not done it's a good than really, really good so you're a teenager 14 15 had politics become part of the idea did you were you thinking I, when I grow up what I really want to be is chancellor of the exchequer or
0: was there some other thought in your head there was definitely a period when I wanted to play for Norwich but that um good luck with that didn't quite work out and um, although I didn't really ever give that up until about four or five years ago, I was in this mind, I, in my mind, I always believed that it was possible there might be a Tanoi announcement. Did you? you no, know, We're short, we need a volunteer, and it might be me. However, I wanted to be a, a politician, or at least I wanted to be part of making economic policy. This was 1983, 84, 85. I had a brilliantly inspirational... Uh, economics teacher at school called Peter Baker, who always believed that it wasn't simply about the ideas, but their application. And unemployment was above 3 million, youth unemployment was very high. And there was a big um, debate about monetarism and how the economy worked. And I think from from studying A-level at school onwards, I always wanted to be part of Showing there 's a different way to run the economy and to make economic policy and it and that was in my mind all the way through undergraduate and graduate school and when you look at your the
1: the, the arc of your story, you go off to uh, Oxford and then Harvard, and then you go to the f t and then you end up with with Gordon Brown I mean it looks with hindsight being a beautiful thing, like a perfectly designed path for a man who would end up in government. Were there there moments that took you by surprise? Or I know you're a very ambitious man and you hate losing. Was there at some point where a plan emerged
0: or did it take you by surprise? The thing which took me by surprise in the end was the desire to get elected because I'm not sure that necessarily that was part of my plan when I was Oxford and Harvard at the, the FT. When I went to work with Gordon, it was to be an economic advisor i then went to the treasury i was there for 8 years through all of those budgets and spending reviews and in retrospect that was the my most influential period of my of my life of my of my career but i think i realized that i wasn't going to be satisfied Simply being an advisor in the back room, I needed to have a go at trying to put myself out there and taking the heat myself. I was was looking at it. And one of
1: the curious things is, um, so you actually get a seat in 2005. Yeah. um, And you do go into the kind of job you'd expect of you, which is, I think, your economic secretary to the Treasury. And then you're moved to be Minister for Children, Schools and Families. So that at the point when the most severe economic crisis, until that point, hits in 2008 with the credit crunch and Alistair Darling yep. and, and Gordon Brown having to basically save the global economy, you're outside the Treasury. So there are two questions. One, was that infuriating or were you actually inside the Treasury anyway because they called you up and said, leave what you're doing, get in here, we need your help? It
0: was frustrating and infuriating is n- is not the right word because being the cabinet minister in charge of schools and children's policy was hugely important and consuming and hard, and we had huge potential to do good things. But i had spent the previous 15 years of my life studying and working uh, on the economy, and then suddenly we were in the middle of the biggest crisis of our generation. I was on the, the, the outside, and it was frustrating. But I also very consciously stayed on the outside. I didn't... Oh, you must have been to... waiting for the call, though. You must have been waiting for Gordon to, to... You and Gordon were, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. You were like that. Yeah, but it, it was the other way around. The, the call came very many times from Gordon, and I basically said no. And um, the, the, I didn't think What did was... you say Now, Well, so if you go back to the, the, the history, and the couple of... When Gordon becomes Prime Minister, for three days, um, before his first reshuffle, he has said to me that he's decided he wants to make me, the Chancellor, and David Miliband, Foreign Secretary. And I said, well, look, I think this is a big leap for me. There'll be lots of controversy. He said, it's what yeah, I'm People going to would do. have been livid
1: if a newly elected MP had been made Chancellor of the Exchequer, wouldn't they? Well, we have one now called Rishi Sunak. Well,
0: that's true. But the, I'm talking back in 2005. That, but, Yeah, but 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 then he was a new Prime Minister and I'd had a long pedigree in the Treasury. So sure. uh, there'd been lots of speculation I had done an interview saying that I wasn't expecting that because I wanted to dampen it. And then he then changed his mind. The truth is, there's a part of me which was feeling quite relieved because it would have been a hell of a step up. But he said, choose what you want to do instead. And I chose um, education, children, schools and families because that was something which I felt very passionate about. And that idea of bringing all policy for children and families into one place is something that I've been very involved in in the Treasury thinking about in the previous six months. But I know quite a lot about economic history and political economic history, and how hard it is to be Chancellor, if you're being second-guessed, how vital the relationship between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister is, how often that becomes under pressure at times of tension and difficulty. Alistair Darling was the Chancellor. Gordon could have chosen me. He'd chosen Alistair. He was the Chancellor. Gordon, as Prime Minister, had to work out his relationship with the Chancellor. If I inserted myself into the middle of that relationship and became a second guessing source of advice you know that was potentially very destabilizing and i had another job to do um, which was to do children's schools and families so i yes it was frustrating i sat it out and didn't i mean i'm not going to say i never spoke to gordon about it because every now and then i'd be in for something else and he would say this is going on but um would I read the papers? Would I come to meetings? Would I become a economic policy player from education? I said I wouldn't do it.
1: Now, listen. Should we move on to kebabs? Um, I'm sure you. Sure. You know, um, I'm sure you've got loads there, but you should have uh, in yours. You should have lamb cheese, chicken cheese, and nadana, which is the the minced lamb one. The
0: right. minced lamb ones are gorgeous.
1: You, you know, not not all podcasts are like it's this. It's incredible.
0: Ed. I've got tavuk shish and shish kebab, and I've also got a couple of those amazing long green um, peppers, which however however much you try and cook them at home, for some reason you can never quite get them to taste the same.
1: I think it's about having hot charcoal going all the time.
0: Now, listen, I'm not going to drag over the
1: bones of uh, those (laughs) Labour governments, or even the time um, in opposition. I'm curious... How, how much of an impact it was on you when you lost... Oh, is that really good chicken? You were just holding that up with a it's look on your face. It's good. But that moment in 2015, when you lost the election, when you lost your seat, um, and just to complicate things, over on the other side, Yvette Cooper, your, your wife of many, many years, she doesn't lose her seat. What was it like? Was that a very odd night in your life? Well, it's
0: very memorable and very odd. It wasn't a hugely upsetting night i don't think i felt upset for until the um the, e- the evening of the next day i mean that night at 10 o'clock the exit poll dropped and until that moment i think everybody was expecting a hung parliament uh, that there wouldn't be a conservative majority and then the exit poll dropped at 10 o'clock and suddenly the exit poll said conservative majority and that was kind of quite a big surprise i mean it turned out the exit poll understated the toy majority i went off to to Leeds to do interviews with David Dimbleby down the line from the Leeds count and all the broadcasters, which I thought were going to be easy because nobody would know what was going on at that point. I wasn't expecting an exit poll with a Conservative majority. But at that point, you're sort of pushing away the exit poll and saying it's far too early to tell. And David Dimbleby said, there's rumours that your seat may be at risk. And you hadn't thought this Until that moment, I'd, it never occurred to me that I would lose my seat.
1: So were you on camera, I should know this, but were you on camera when, when your seat was or did you get back to the
0: count? So what then happened was I went over the road. Suddenly I realised this is really tight. Maybe my seat's going to be tight. I don't really want to be on film while this is unfolding. I went across the road to a Premier Inn and basically sat alone until seven in the morning watching the television. And I have realised over those couple of hours I might lose. And then I sat there and thought about what losing was going to mean for seven hours and thought about what I would say. And I had a chance to think it through in that period. And I'm thinking, well, if David Cameron wins a majority, Ed Miliband's going to resign. There's going to be a leadership election. A bet will stand. Do I really want to be in Parliament for five years in her way? So actually I was thinking, well, you know, I don't want to lose, but if I lose, okay, I mean... It will be a change, but you had to see the opportunity rather than the the downside. It was only late in the day when I found out that my my daughter, who at the time was doing GCSEs, she had left without my result being public and then got halfway to school. She was doing that day a GCSE exam, and then she realised she couldn't do the exam if she didn't know. So she came all the way back and waited until 8.15 it was announced and then went off to school again. And then my son, who at the time would have been... 13, had sat all night with his granddad. That that was a tough bit. What did Yvette say? I had spoken to Yvette a couple of times. She had her account, um, told her what I was going to say. She then came and met me at my agent's house in Morley, where we, we realised that we were going to be chased by the press, and I didn't really want to make statements beyond the speech. So we went back to his house, and there's about 20 people from my campaign team, and they were all talking to me like I died. <laughs> and I remember it really well, kind of like, well, you know, you really made a contribution. It's been, you know, we're going to be sad to lose you. And I said, you know, this is like this is like my funeral, and I'm still alive. And at that point, my agent's wife, who's brilliant called Jane. She said, I know what we'll do. And she went to the kitchen, came back in with 20 small glasses and a bottle of Harvey's Bristol cream. And she poured everybody at nine in the morning, a small glass of sherry. And they all toasted my demise. So we sort of had a a sherry wake toast.
1: The the post politics we're well, not completely post politics because you're you're commentating on it and you make TV programs you've been across Euro land and Trump's America but whether the post MP or parliamentary Ed Balls might quietly be a bit happier than the one who was actually inside politics
0: I found coming out of government very hard because we'd been in government for thirty years thirteen years and suddenly there was all this time and I lost purpose but I did when I was Shadow Chancellor, so still in politics. Start learning the piano, ran marathons, tried to sort of to spend more time doing uh, other stuff. But um, and so today, compared to when I was in government, I'm fitter. Uh, I enjoy music more. I cook more. I can spend more time with the kids. I make more time for friends. I definitely feel as though I have a, a rounder, happier life. But politics is so purposeful. It's so hard, so important. Um, should we move to dessert?
1: You should, sure. You- Actually, can I eat a bit more of my chicken? Yeah, go on. I'm going to tell you what you've got. Is, I'm going to try and pronounce it correctly. Is a kamakali kunefe, which is shredded angel hair pastry with syrup, pistachio, mascarpone, all the good stuff. Uh, Could do with a bit of vanilla ice cream, to be honest. Uh, there th- was meant to be, but maybe it didn't turn up. Uh, <laughs> you've done a lot of broadcasting. Yep. Particularly the one I was watching was your, your adventures in Euroland. And you make this point that if you just dismiss these people who voted for populist governments, who voted for right-wing governments as awful and evil, then it's not really going to get you anywhere. And I found myself scratching my head at that because, you know, I'm Jewish. I'm a non-observant Jew, but I'm Jewish enough to be the recipient of vast anti-Semitic abuse. And I'm just wondering whether you can go too far with trying to be understanding, Um, in the political circumstances, and actually what's needed is just statements. In the the episode in the Netherlands, where they're all dancing around as the Dutch traditional character, Black Peter, you're horrified. And I wonder whether you really believe that, or you were just
0: trying to be open-minded. I think you have to distinguish between listening to voters, citizens, understanding their concerns and trying to get to the heart of what they're worrying about, And then politicians who sometimes, for populist or quite dangerous, nasty ends, can manipulate voters to fit into, as you said, um, dangerous, evil, certainly immoral purposes. And there is a distinction there. I found going to have dinner with the AFD, the sort of new Nazi Party politician in Germany, very difficult indeed, because the things he said and the things he stands for, the things he advocates are abhorrent. And the production team had said to me, would I be willing to go and have dinner with him? I said, I will. They said, would you be willing to to cook dinner with him? Um, because we often try and get involved in activities to relax the contributors in order to get them to open up. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. I can't do that with this guy. I'm not going to go and, and, and join in with him in his kitchen, I will have dinner and I'll confront and challenge. But what I'm not going to do is sort of become his his friend because I can't do that. Whereas on the other hand, we went to a village in East Germany where they'd had the largest vote for their party in the elections. So you might think we're going to go and meet a whole bunch of sort of neo-Nazi, racist, anti-immigrant. And it was really hard to find that at all. We dug and dug and but what people said was, well, we've got a real problem in our in our village because the local school closed and all of our children now who used to go to school in the village now have to travel by bus five miles down the road. And in the election, we invited all the politicians to come and meet us. And the only candidate who came was from the AFD and they said, look, we understand we need to make sure public services are available for every village and we'll try and sort this out. And so we voted for them. They felt as though mainstream politics wasn't listening and somebody turned up and took them seriously. Now, I kind of, don't want to be kind of naive about it because there will have been some of them who, who probably quite like some of the AFD policies, but it's very easy from the outside to say, well, if you voted AFD, you must be nasty, racist and really right-wing. And actually, it may be that you just feel as though things haven't been fair And the mainstream's not caring about you. And if you leave populism and those parties to hoover up um, that support, that's when you end up with societies taking dangerous directions. So you've got to understand that, listen to it, and try and counter it. That's the the argument of the the programme. The decisions. I mean, the obvious one, Uh, agreeing to do strictly. Was that
1: a a long decision or was that, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to do that. Was it quick? It didn't
0: happen until well over a year after the election. And I'd gone through this kind of long period of thinking, well, what do I do now? But there'd also been speculation about me going on strictly the summer of 2015 because Yvette is on Woman's Hour. This is the only time she was asked this in the whole election. um, Will Ed Balls be the power behind the throne pulling your strings? And Yvette says, no. He's got much better things to do. Goodness knows he'll he'll probably be doing something like Strictly or something, she says, which then means by the the time we got to the weekend, the son was writing, and Balls to do Strictly. I mean, as far as I know, nobody asked me to do Strictly and I certainly wasn't going to do it. And they then came the following spring, an email arrived. I said to Evette Strictly, have actually asked me to go on and I'm going to say no. And she said, why? I said, well, because I can't go and do Strictly. I'm sort of, you I used to be a cabinet minister and I've no idea what the hell I'm doing with my life, but surely it's something
1: it's substantive and
0: important. Mm. I just don't know what it is, it's not strictly. And she said, why would you turn down the experience of a lifetime? And I then direct messaged on Twitter, Jeremy Vine, and he said, It is by far the most life affirming, positive thing I have ever done in my whole life and you've got the chance, you should go and do it.
1: And did you find it to be the most life affirming thing you'd done? Oh yeah.
0: It was fabulous. It was hard physically because we were doing 35 hours um, a week training, and as a politician, you perform, but you always yeah. play yourself—a version of or, or a version of yourself. Yeah. Whereas I had to learn to perform a role, and I, what I found was, if I was being me, I, was, I found it very constricting. But the moment I could decide to become, you know, the mask or a gladiator or a gangnam dancer, I learned to put self aside and sort of and I'd never done that kind of performance before and I really enjoyed it. That moment of and performing the waltz, it's you just stand there and thinking, what am I doing? (laughs) I to my life. I wanted to be Chancellor the Exchequer. (laughs) And I think Jeremy was right. It is, it's very kind of life-affirming. It's the only thing which my kind of kids ever, ever were actually quite proud of.
1: You, I mean, you've got BAFTA moment of the year for Dancing Gangnam Style. By the way, have you, have you ever seen the video of me being taught to dance Gangnam Style by Si? No. I interviewed Si, and uh, there is this video. Oh Yeah, and uh, he's very clever, very bright man, very interesting. Um, it, it, the whole thing is social commentary. Um, it's not K-pop. It's a particular approach to, the, you know, the... The best bejé, the the Knightsbridge of soul and their and their yeah. modes and manners, um, and then at the end he teaches me, and I finally, yeah, I get it. Oh look, you're doing it now. I think that is a marvelous thing. Uh, <laughs> on top of that, when did you take up the piano? Because that is the one thing we shared. Because the only communication we've had prior to this was me inviting you to one of my jazz which I'm really um, keen to come to. You. Well, when the time comes, you know, when, when the bars reopen and the, the venues reopen, we will make that
0: happen. When, when did you take up the piano? My kids, who were all learning piano, they had, we just had an electronic piano at home and they had a teacher who was fine. And then they got a new teacher who was teaching people on our road called Lola Perrin. And she was a brilliant teacher and really, she, and they all loved her. And, and I thought, well, why aren't I learning to play the piano? And then I was then doing an interview with Patrick Winter, at The Guardian. And I just mentioned this. And he said, I started recently. It's the best thing I've done. And what I did was, he said, I, I rented a piano for Markson's Pianos. And if you rent a piano and then after a while you want to, you can then buy the piano and the rent rolls in. Yeah, sure. And so, I, so within two weeks of this this moment, I had a piano teacher and I rented Markson's Piano and we were off. And are you, are you learning classical? Are you learning jazz? What are you learning? I decided that I should... Um, go through the, the grade exams and I've actually taken four. So you turn up at those exam centres and I, I'm assuming the rooms are full of children. Lola basically teaches pretty much all children but she had a couple of adults and she'd never had an adult before we wanted to do the exams but I thought that was a way to learn technique and she said do you want to kind of be part of my booking for grade one and I said I did. And she said, well, it will be up in Finsbury Town Hall, but the other thing you need to know is there'll be six of you and the other five are all aged <laughs> under 10. And, and I said, well, fine, I'll come. Then the um, five days before, this was at the very end of the exam cycle, Ed Millerman's office announced he is making a speech on banking on the morning of my piano exam. <laughs> and I say to my office, like, I'm really sorry, I've been practising this for nine months. I'm doing my exam and they said you're the shadow chancellor the leader of the opposition is doing a speech on banking you can't not go and i said well i'm really sorry it's my my piano exam and they thought this was an unacceptable explanation Nobody will ever understand it so then phone calls were made and finally the um associated board the day before two days later the day the final day of the um the cycle said they would let me do the exam at their place just by the BBC, just above Oxford Circus. And I turn up with my piano teacher and there was, the only other people in the room was a, a mother and her 10-year-old. And I'm so embarrassed, you know, that he's brought his mum and I've brought my piano teacher. And then as we're back, because you're allowed to go in the practice room for the exam... The mother leans over to me and says, excuse me. She said, do you mind me asking, are you taking the exam? And I said, yes. And she said, so am I. She said, my son's come along for moral support. Oh, that's a brilliant story. And then when I went into the exam, I'm not sure it was that one or a couple of years later, the the next one. There was a trainee examiner. So the examiner's sitting there being trained. So he's examining you, but he's got another examiner invigilating. And I have to do the whole play the pieces, the sight reading, you know,
1: clap yeah, after out
0: me rhythm. Things. it's incredibly embarrassing we get to the end and he says um very formally he says thank you that is the end of your exam and and i said i've got to say much more stressful than the house of commons <laughs> and he looked up at me with this fear in his eyes because obviously he's not allowed to have any personal engagement with the examinee even if it's the shadow Charles Exchequer. so he looked at me and went put his head down and carried on writing and I walked out feeling a bit of
1: a <laughs> I think we should, you know, when all this is over, we get around a piano and we show each other a few a few tunes. If
0: you would teach me a little bit of simple jazz piano playing, I would love it. It's a deal. Definitely a deal.
1: Ed Definitely. Balls, thank you very much for staying in for lunch with me. Um, it's been fascinating and um, an absolute joy in every single way. I've enjoyed
0: it very much. I'm going to go and get all the others down and see if they fancy a bit of Turkish late lunch.
1: I'm glad to know Ed and the family will be eating lunchtime Turkish for the rest of the week. And if you live in London and you're interested in trying what we ate for yourself, Ed's lunch came from a stalwart of the Turkish restaurant community on London's Green Lanes, Daya Bekir, via Deliveroo. And mine came from Saray, that's S A R A Y, on Norwood Road in South London. Uh, they deliver direct from their website, which is sarayhernhill, all one word, dot co dot uk. If that wasn't enough, you can find a heap more episodes wherever you you get your podcasts and if you could give us uh, i don't know a five-star review and share us would be almost embarrassingly grateful out to lunch is a something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the mix engineer was josh gibbs the assistant producer was jemima rathbone the producers are selena ream and hannah newton and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman Next time, I'll be in for lunch with the BAFTA-nominated actress famous for her roles in Wild Rose, Chernobyl, and Beast. It's Jessie Buckley. What was it like being on set with Julie Walters? But she's really like down to earth, and she's just there
0: with you. You know, there's no like airs or graces or or anything, and very open, and wants to make each scene as alive as possible, but also up for a laugh and a cup of tea and a packet of, uh, packet of crisps, which is the most important thing on a set. <laughs>